true terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime, I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected. They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. Jailhouse interviews with those held responsible. The context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting. And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. How's it going, Lance? Tim, I couldn't be better. Really, if I was any better, it would be uh, it would be truly illegal. <laughs> well, uh, this is a great episode, Lance, and I'm with you. We speak to a wonderful woman named Jill McCabe Johnson. She recently had an essay of hers published in Slate on Slate.com. It's really interesting. It's called "The Night Gary Drove Me Home." Right, and the Gary that is referenced here is serial killer Gary Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer, who confessed to 71 victims. He was convicted of 49, and he is currently spending the rest of his life in prison at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. And Jill writes about the time where I think she narrowly escaped being one of his first victims. It really does seem like that, Lance, if, of course, uh, the Gary that she knew back then was this Gary. And, well, it, it sure seems like that, too, because the Gary that she knew used to hang out in the parking lot outside of her apartment. Pretty creepy behavior, technically stalking her. You can kind of connect the dots, and it seems like that's Gary Ridgway that she used to know. And Jill is also writing a book that is called Learning to Spar, and it is an approach to defending yourself both emotionally and physically uh, as a young woman. She was 18 years old when this happened to her, and looking back on it, 
and maybe, you know, you and I and even people we know looking back at things that we just narrowly escaped that young, you just don't have enough knowledge of the world to understand certain things. You have to go through these experiences, but you should have some understanding of how to defend yourself, whether it's emotionally and physically a combination of both. But to be aware of your surroundings as well, I think she really looked at this incident with Gary Ridgway. And while it seemed very innocent at the time, again, a narrow escape. Absolutely. It's a compelling story, Lance, and I want to invite all of our listeners to check it out. We're going to link to it in the show notes. It's an article on Slate, and Oxygen wrote about it as well. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and this interview with Jill. The audio is okay. We had a little bit of troubles with it, but it's it's okay. It's listenable. I think once you hear what Jill has to say, you will not so much pay attention to the quality of the audio because the content is really what's important. And you can check out that article. We put the link in the show notes, and you can also check out her website, which is jillmccabejohnson.com. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Follow us on social media at CrawlspacePod. Welcome to the podcast, Jill McCabe Johnson. How are you today? I'm doing really well, thanks. And thanks for having me on your show. Oh, it's our pleasure. I am so uh, thrilled that you decided to come on this program and talk about this pretty unique experience that you wrote about. I, I think it was originally in Slate that you wrote about this experience you had. But um, before we get into that, can you uh, let the listeners know just you know what you do and, and sort of a lead in to who you are? Sure. So I'm a writer and I have been working on a memoir, and the memoir, uh, its its working title is "Learning to Spar," and it's about my journey as a woman living in the Pacific Northwest, where there's a pretty terrifying history of violence against women, including uh, some horrific serial killers who lived and and targeted women right in the area where I grew up and spent my, you know, young adulthood. And um, so, so the memoir is about violence against women and learning to protect oneself. And I was doing some research because I wanted to make sure that I was accurately portraying some of the history of the, of the violence there. And particularly with some of the more well-known serial killers like Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer. And there are a number of others as well. And in that research, I realized how close many of their abductions and killings were. Some of them, you know, just blocks away from where I lived or women picked up across the street from where I lived. And, um, and then I, I, so this is the awkward part, <laughs> and I have a hard time talking about it even now, even despite this this essay that came out in Slate. Um, so I'm just going to sort of awkwardly bumble through. But when I was 18, and you know, only about six months out of high school, I used to go to a a dance club. Uh, you know, like a, a country western dance hall with a friend of mine whose boyfriend played in a band there. And so 
we went there, oh gosh, almost every weekend. And, and, you know, we, it wasn't really a pickup place, but we did dance with people and, and we, and we had a nice time. And there was a fellow there who danced with me, you know, on a pretty regular basis and often would even come and sit at our table, but he was, he was kind of shy and I couldn't figure out if he liked me, if he didn't like me. Well, one evening he gave me a ride home. He came up to my apartment to use the restroom and then came into my bedroom and one thing led to another and we ended up making out. And then I sort of, (laughs) um, let my inhibitions go a little more than I had intended. And, um, and we, and we had, you know, we, we had intercourse and, um, Anyway, it, he, my roommates came home. He heard them. He seemed alarmed and surprised I had roommates, and he left shortly after that. And, um, and he, was, he was a fellow who worked doing painting at a local, you know, at a, a, like industrial painting. Um, and, and he was going through a divorce, and it sounded pretty ugly and they had a child and there was a bit of a custody battle that they were in the middle of. And anyway, um, and I thought he might've lied about his age. And I just, you know, I just had kind of a bad feeling about it and I didn't go out with him again. Well, 20 years later, they caught the Green River Killer. And I should, I should mention that a little more than a year later, the Green River Killer started killing people in that area. So at this time, there were no, there was no activity as far as that goes. And they had caught Ted Bundy. And so we kind of had this feeling of, oh, we're all safe now, you know? Um, so it re- wasn't really on my radar, but but um, anyway, 20 years later, they finally caught this fellow who had um, killed dozens of people. And he. it turns out that one of the things he did was something that he did that night that he was in my bedroom, he would pull out his wallet, show his business card, showing that he painted professionally, and then show a photo of his son. So I thought that was kind of a weird coincidence. And they had the same first name. And I thought that was a weird coincidence. But I saw, you know, I saw him, um, some footage of him, I think it was like him being arrested. And he kind of looked like the same guy, but not really. And so like his hair seemed darker and he would just was, I don't know, heavier. And I, I just kind of told myself, oh, you know, how many people, you know, convince themselves they know someone famous or infamous. And I thought, what are the odds? It just seems, it just seems practically impossible. And um, so I just put it out of my mind. Well, then as I was doing this research in the last year, I learned a lot of other things that were pretty disturbing. For one thing, Gary Ridgway went to Parents Without Partners meetings at that very same club where the dance hall where my friend and I used to go. And he took dates there. He met women there. He, um, so he frequented that quite a bit. He also would show his victims who primarily were prostitutes, but there were many who were not. And he would show them, pull out his wallet, show them his business card and a photo of his son. And 
And he believed that that would put them at ease. So um, the uh, anyway, there were, there were a lot of other coincidences, too many really to list, but one that was really disturbing was one of his victims was a woman who lived in the same apartment complex. And so that that was really disturbing because, I mean, who knows, but I just hated to think that I might have somehow, you know, brought him into her, her area. And especially since after after he you know that night well he asked me out again he called following weekend and asked me out and I I was coming down with a respiratory flu I and I didn't want to date him anyway and I said no well after that I saw him in his truck in my apartment parking lot on several occasions and by then I had started dating another person who became my first husband and every time I was, I was with that, I was with that person, that man. And so um, Gary just sort of, he saw me, we made eye contact, he looked away and then he drove off. And I, you know, I, 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 I was, I was really naive to, to put it mildly. And I really didn't, it didn't occur to me that he was there for nefarious purposes. I thought, oh, he wants to ask me out again, or he knows somebody who lives here. And I really didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't worry about it. So, and, you know, and nothing ever happened. Um, So, you know, thank goodness. Yeah, definitely. That, uh, that must have been quite an experience. Um, Thank you for, uh, for sharing all this uh, so far. I feel like uh, there's a lot to unpack. So how did you find out that, this was uh, that you believe this was Gary Ridgway. Well, the main place that I learned a lot of this was reading a book um, called "Defending Gary" by one of his defense attorneys, Gary Prothero, and it gave really detailed information about the defense, about the in, you know investigation and the interviews that the police had with them, investigators had with him post-arrest, as well as the defense team's conversations with him. And so it was, you know, it was a lot more information than one would have seen in the news at that time, like the fact that he used to go to the White Shutters, um, this, this, you know, dance hall. And um, so anyway, that, that was where, I read a lot of that, including that he had said that he would, you know, he explained his MO, that he would show women, you know, his business card and a photo of his son. And, um, and, and he said, you know, that he did it in order to put them at ease. And that he said, meanwhile, he was thinking, you know, um, kill, kill, kill. I'm going to put her at ease and I'm going to kill the bitch. Uh, if you forgive the language, um, quoting, of course. And so, so anyway, that, that was where I read, you know, some of that. And, and one of the things that had stood out about that night was at one point, and this was not immediately after, but not long after he had pulled out his wallet, he said, 
you seem so much more at ease now. Why? And I thought it was such an odd thing to say and ask. So anyway, that stood out. And then when I read that in the, in the book, that was, as you might expect, <laughs> a little disturbing to see. Yeah. A little unsettling. Did it actually make you feel a little uh, less uneasy? No. You know, again, it probably should have. But I really thought he was an incredibly insecure person. And I attributed it to him having been married and now new to dating. You know, I thought, oh, this poor guy is going through a divorce. He's super nervous. And I just thought he's really insecure. Okay. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Um, do you think that that insecurity was uh, an act so that he could gain your, your sympathy and trust? Well, that's a great question, Lance. I, I don't know. Um, it could very well be. It could be that because he was being deceptive, that, um, you know, that he just wasn't maybe as polished about it yet, or I don't know. Um, but he definitely, you know, the, the prosecutors, the defense, and the police all commented on how good he was at appearing really sort of harmless and, and kind of pathetic. And that was my take on him, too, that he was kind of pathetic, like this you know, they just, somebody described him as a mousy little man. And, and that was kind of how I saw him too. You know, I mean, not exactly mousy, but, but somebody who was not really confident. Yeah. And just looking at pictures of him, he does kind of strike you as being a bit, um, a bit, yeah. Mousy is a great way to put it. Uh, a, a, like a, a bit reserved, like very, uh, very reserved. I'm curious about the moment where you said your roommates were home and, and he seemed like he was affected by that somehow. Uh, did that strike you as, as anything more than someone who just didn't want to be around more people? It was another thing that at the time I didn't really know how to interpret it. I didn't know if, um, if he um, didn't, you know, want um, what we were doing to disturb them, if he was being considerate of them. You know, in retrospect, it was creepy. You know, once I started realizing who he, he might very well, and it seems probably was, in retrospect, that seemed very creepy. But at the time, I thought, well, maybe he, he you know, just doesn't, want to disturb them. Yeah. And and the reason why I ask is because I feel like that is um, the, I feel like that that is what one would think. And, and I don't want to paint any part of this as being salacious or trying to, you know, provide some sort of verbal uh, jump scare for the audience. Like, uh, oh, you know, you hear like the, like the hardcore strings in the background, right. the, scare, <laughs> the scare chords going. Um, I want to, I want to really show how normal, it was how somebody who's coming off of a bad marriage and shows you pictures of family and seems mousy and seems uh, seems seems withdrawn even or 
or or not confident low self-esteem like this person comes off like that and and plays plays almost the victim role in this where where roommates come in and now you know he's not comfortable being there it just all feels very normal yeah i'll tell you another thing that i misinterpreted at the white shutters at the dance hall when he would sit with us he only spoke with me didn't speak with anyone else around the table and he kind of scooted his chair back and i thought i thought he was shy and then when he and i talked he was exactly that word that you used. He was reserved. He, he was very intent, a very intent listener. And instead of finding that creepy, I was flattered. I thought, oh, maybe he does like me. Wow, he's just really so attentive. And, um, and he didn't say a lot about himself unless I asked. And I asked him, you know, about his job and how long he'd been there and did he like it and that sort of thing, you know. And then he did talk a little bit. And so I just attributed all of that to him being, you know, shy and, and reserved and, and, and not very confident. And then later I learned that he actually has kind of a low IQ. And then it made sense like, oh, well, right. That's, that's part of his way of being undetected. And maybe he didn't see himself as not being very bright, but maybe he had learned the more he opens his mouth, the more people don't trust him or the more they question or, uh, I, I don't know, you know, judge him in some way. And you wrote to him recently, just in January of this year, and I'm really fascinated by the questions that you asked and, uh, and I guess the answers that you want to know. Um, if you don't mind, uh, you were curious if you were the first person that he showed a photo of his son and a business card to. Well, I guess what would it mean to you if, if you were? Before I answer that, let me, um, let me just clarify. These were questions, uh, the, the questions that you're referring to in, in the Slate essay are questions that I would have liked to have asked. I didn't, I didn't put them in the letter um, because I didn't think they would get past the guards. They scrutinized their mail very closely. So I, I, didn't, I didn't put those questions in there. Instead, all I said was that we, you know, had met and danced on, you know, quite a few occasions and that he had also come over to my apartment once. And that's all I said. I didn't really elaborate more because I knew that anything that hinted at sex or the later violence that he committed would probably get pulled by the guards. So I didn't, I didn't say, I didn't even say that we kissed, you know, I just didn't say anything like that. I guess well, certainly my reasons for coming forward and, and also my reasons for writing this memoir have to do with a deeply held um, sort of value I have around wanting to change the way our society in general, and this is probably global, condone and perpetuate violence against women. And there's a lot of 
of shaming and silencing of victims as well as survivors. And, and so by being silent about the things that I've experienced um, feels to me like succumbing to that. And so knowing whether or not I was the first or, you know, like, was that, did he get the idea? Because he thought, wow, did that put her at ease? Could I, you know, maybe later he thought, could I use that to, you know, I remember that one time that that seemed to put that one, you know, woman at ease and, or whether or not he'd already been doing it. I, long before I realized, you know, that there might be a connection between Gary Ridgway and myself, I wondered whether or not he had actively been killing before his first victim, Wendy Caulfield, had been found in July of 1982. He confessed that he had stabbed a six-year-old boy when he was a teenager. And he told the boy something like, I always wondered what it would feel like to kill someone. And so to go from that until his 30s without acting on that, I don't know, that seems, that seems unlikely to me. To go from that to suddenly killing clusters of women in just a few days seems, you know, and I'm no expert, certainly, but you hear about how they typically kind of ramp up. And so if he, if I was not the first person he said that to, who else did he say that to? And who else might he have killed? Yeah, that's a excellent uh, point. And, and the reasoning behind wanting to know that is obviously to get some sort of sense of how this behavior escalates. Like you said, it just doesn't happen out of out of the blue. Somebody doesn't wake up, uh, um, you know, a, a, a psychotic. And I wanted to circle back to your book um, or your memoir, Learning to Spar. And, and you said that, uh, you know, there's this, and it's true, there's a problem, a, a, a serious significant problem with uh, perpetuating violence against women from the media to uh, things that happen in politics and, and on and on. Um, is your book focused not only on physically defending yourself, but also emotionally defending yourself? And where do you feel like this could be translated into a different way of thinking for uh, the people who are reading it? And how do you get out of that perpetuating cycle? Absolutely. Um, in terms of the emotionally protecting oneself, you know, the 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 techniques that. Uh, so I um, studied martial arts for quite a few years, and I I co-owned a dojo and um, and then taught martial arts. and And the techniques that one uses in the sparring ring, really, we use every day in our interactions, the way that we, you know, even it, they don't have to be contentious, but, but we do, we set boundaries, for example, and we, we, you know, we offer, for example, information, let's say, well, that's the kind of, you know, if you, if you strike someone in the sparring ring, um, 
then that's intended, you know, to do damage. But if you if you look at that as a metaphor for any action, you could strike in defense of yourself where you could, you know, offer something in a positive way. So that those things act as metaphors. And and so for me, learning to spar really enhanced my awareness of my own attitudes and behaviors of my interactions. And and the other thing about sparring is it's not really a fight. In in the sparring ring, it's it's a, a partnership and you're you're teaching one another, you're learning from one another. And so that's easy to translate to our interactions with each other as well. Now other things that are important to me and sometimes out of the control of an individual, but certainly within the control of our larger, you know, institutions are the ways in which the police and um, prosecutors and judges and the court system react to various, various, um, you know, problems and um, crimes. And so, for example, the, the likelihood that femicide, you know, murder of women, has been preceded by some kind of violence, usually intimate partner violence, but not always, uh, is very high. And so when women report any kind of violence, whether from a stranger or uh, an intimate partner or a member of their household, then there are ways for the police to be able to do assessments to see whether whether or not this is likely to continue or there are likely to be other incidents. And, you know, it's not completely foolproof. But unfortunately, what happens a lot of the time is they'll say, oh, it's someone you know. Well, this is a matter between you and that person. We can take a report, but there's nothing more we can do. Some police departments are getting better about this, and they'll say things like, well, you should document every interaction, which is good advice, but it's still not the police being a little more proactive. And and in my own case, um, without going into too much detail about some of the other things that happened to me, but I was I was um, pursued by for three years by a, a very um, unstable person. There was a lot of dismissiveness from the police to prosecutors to judges to parole officers, and every step of the way, there were actions they could have taken that would have probably not only protected me, but protected him because he had some severe mental health issues that they, they didn't have the proper policies and procedures and infrastructure and training to be able to put him on a path to get that kind of. And so there was a lot of unnecessarily and unnecessary violence and, and a death that I think could have been avoided. Did you say uh, a death that could have been avoided? 
Well, it's complicated and I don't want to go too far into it. And hopefully, you know, someday this book will be published and it'll be more clear. But um, it, it's a bit of a rabbit hole to go down. But um, yeah, there, there was someone who, who died. And, um, and anyway, it's, it's a little complicated to go into. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions. But the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. The more we're having this conversation, the more uh, I'm sort of uh, humbled to be a part of it. Well, that's very kind. And uh, I'm curious about when you saw Gary in the parking lot. Um, I'm just I'm curious how many times you saw him there. And I'm also wondering if you mentioned Marsha Faye Chapman, who was one of Ridgeway's victims. Um, did you know her? Did you live in the same apartment complex with her? Was that the same one that Gary had visited? I did not know her. She lived, there were four buildings in the complex. She lived in a different building. And really, I didn't really know any of my neighbors. But I, I moved out before her death. And so, I, and I'm not sure when she moved in and whether or not we had an overlap. But I was no longer there when, when she was killed. I had moved by that point. And I saw Gary... I think three or four times. And again, like 
like I said, I didn't really place a lot of, a lot of importance on it. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to talk to him. I was, was relieved not to have to talk to him because I was afraid he was going to ask me out again. And I didn't want to say no, you know, that's always an awkward thing for somebody to turn somebody down. And, you know, again, I, I, I certainly had no inkling that he could potentially be dangerous. So I was more concerned about protecting his feelings than anything. Right, exactly. Because at that time, what is there to tell you uh, anything about him being a dangerous human being? I mean, you were you were 18 years old, and I would imagine that you've never, you hadn't met anybody of that sort of, uh, on that level of uh, psychopath, right? Like, you had nothing that was going to set your radar off at that point. Right. I really, I really had no clue about, you know, different, um, you know, like mental illness and sociopathy or, or, you know, what it means to be a psychopath. And, you know, I mean, how many of us even knows a violent criminal, let alone a murderer or serial murderer? It just seems so so outside the like you know how likely is that that anyone we meet could be who who looks for that even yeah and in the uh 80s when there was no real um i mean there was media but there was no real media like there is today or social media so what did you even have for a frame of reference looking into other serial killers with other victims and trying to figure out a way to protect yourself based on that information. I mean, you, you had the six o'clock news and, and newspapers, right? Yeah. And at 18, I was definitely not a news hound. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're exactly. So I, I feel like my question is pretty obvious, but I, I, I need to ask it anyway. The reason for writing the essay isn't to put yourself in the spotlight as someone who survived Gary Ridgway. It's to make people aware of this. I mean, make people aware and, and make sure that people don't let their guard down. I mean, is, is that, am I on the right track? Yeah. I, I think that it's a pretty, you know, clear example of how easy it is to be fooled by someone. And especially somebody like Gary Ridgway who targeted teens and young women, you know, at, at that age, how knowledgeable are, are those girls and women to be able to, or likely to even suspect that somebody has, you know, ill will. And so I, I think, and, and the, it's frustrating to me when I see in the media and on social media when people do victim blaming. And, but I understand it. I understand that there's, there's a, 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 an undertone for a lot of people of self-preservation. We want to believe that we would know better, that if we had seen, for example, the guy show up in the parking lot, we would have said, that's weird. I, you know, I, I, I would have called the police at that point. Or if he had pulled out his wallet, we would have said, what a weird thing to do. Who, who shows somebody his, a photo of his son when they want to make out, you know? Um, and so it's, 
it's very it's very tempting i think for all of us to want to believe that our radar is really good that we have a sense of people who are dangerous and and that therefore we would be safe we would not be at risk it's only it's only those really dumb women you know i mean that's kind of the way it comes across and um so i i i want people to understand it can happen to anybody Absolutely. And it's pretty bold of you to write this article or this essay, because I think inevitably there will be some sort of um, salacious spin that is put on it. Is Have you discovered that's been the case with this? Uh, what's the reaction from the readers and, and what's the reaction from the general media? I have. And for the most part, the reaction has been very understanding and supportive and you know, especially from family and friends who have, who have you know reached out or commented on social media, um, there have been a number, quite a few media outlets that reported on the story, and um, one of them, the the headline was was not something that I would have written, <laughs> and um, and it was interesting because the editors at Slate were really wonderful and. Uh, in, in, I guess in journalism, typically what happens is writers and reporters submit their story and then editors write the headlines. And so often the reporters have no say on what the headlines are. Well, the folks at Slate were really kind. They let me see what they were proposing as headlines. We went back and forth a number of times because I was concerned that it would that it that so, the way that they originally worded it would sound as though I just picked some dude up in a bar and you know dragged him home with the intent of having sex and never seeing him again, and um, which was absolutely not the situation. And 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 I you know I didn't even intend for what happened to happen. It just you know things just sort of escalated as as you know many people probably can relate to. Um, but in any case, um, they were wonderful about that. But a, a reporter um, for People wrote a piece. And then I'm not sure who wrote the headline, but the headline said, my one night stand with the Green River Killer. And that bothered me because it sounded as though they were putting words in my mouth. I had not written my one night stand or characterized it that way. But this is a story that has a happy ending because I reached out to the author who was wonderful. And I said, Hey, I, you know, I realized that this probably wasn't your doing, but I wonder if there's any way that this could be changed because it's putting words in my mouth and that's not something I'd written. And he said, absolutely. I'll reach out and, um, and see what we can do. And he did immediately. And within minutes came back and said, They've changed it. It now says a one night stand instead of my one night stand, (laughs) (laughs) which was slightly better, but I still was not comfortable with it. Now I recognized that they were sort of entitled to characterize it as they wished. You know, I, um, my interpretation of that phrase 
perhaps is different from others. I don't like I don't like the way it sounds and I don't like it associated with me. And so I wrote back and I said, well, thanks for that change. I'm still uncomfortable with one night stand. And, um, and so he contacted them again and they changed it. And um, you know what? I should have it memorized what it says, but they changed it to something far, far more accurate and better And all of this took place within minutes. And I really appreciated how professional they were, how responsive they were. And and that was such a lesson for me that, oh, I can advocate for myself with the media about how they're characterizing my story. And so that, that felt really good, honestly. And if, you know, anybody's listening to this and has a similar experience, I hope they'll, you know, stand up for themselves too. Yeah, good uh, point there. I, I wonder if um, anyone has reached out to you who has had similar experiences like this. They have, yeah. There have been um, people who have contacted me and shared experiences with um, Gary Ridgway, with Ted Bundy, with other serial killers, or just other dangerous people. And, um, all of those stories are are just as just as disconcerting, terrifying to me. And in each case, you know, I just think, oh, thank goodness, they're still around to tell their story. And some of them have even said, I've never I've never spoken about this. I've never told anyone. But after reading your story, I I feel the courage to come forward. And I can't tell you how good that makes me feel. And I hope that they will. And I hope that their friends and family will be as wonderful and supportive as mine have been. There have been other people who have reached out and, um, and, and said less positive things and, um, or people who have reached out to ask questions like, um, have you found God? Um, are you, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your one and true savior? Uh, you know, all kinds of different religious or, um, you know, uh, or, you know, suggestions or ideas or advice, lots of advice. And, um, and I take it all as, as acts of kindness, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because you Put yourself out there and, you know, the, there's so many different types of people that are going to consume the content that's put out there. And, and um, if, if part of what you do is solicit and, and welcome people to contact you, then you're going to get those, um, you know, all sorts of comments. But you're right. If someone's telling you, uh, you know, God bless you or asked you if you found Jesus, it's all coming from a good place. You don't have Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to lean one way or the other. You just know that they're they're looking out for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's very sweet. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to, uh, to share or say, uh, Jill? A couple of just little things. Um, one, how much I appreciate the work that both of you do. Uh, it's, I, I had not um, really listened to much um, in the way of true crime before, and I you know, out of ignorance, didn't really have a good sense of, of what it was um, in terms of, you know, some of the media out there. And I guess what I had been exposed to had been 
of a little salacious. And uh, I really respect the work that you two are doing, having listened to quite a few episodes of yours. And so I just want to say thank you for how you really have been bringing a lot of um, a lot of difficult situations to light in a very responsible, respectful way. And, and I think really doing a service to a lot of, a lot of people, whether it's, you know, people who are um, interested in true crime as, as listeners or, or people who are professionals, you know, in terms of maybe they do their own true crime reporting or, or the police or, you know, people in the court system. And I think that, that having a resource that they can go to to listen to the amazing interviews you do is really terrific. So thank you for that. And, um, and, the, and then the, I guess the other thing that I would say is that um, I, I know that the people who listen to true crime are primarily women. I think the estimate is about four out of five listeners are, are women. And, and interestingly, I saw somebody kind of criticizing that. And it was, a, it was a kind of misogyny, you know, making fun of women for listening to true crime. And, and I, but somebody else had said, well, considering that most, uh, you know, crimes of that kind of violence are against women, then yes, of course, we're going to listen to true crime. Of course, we want to be aware and we want to learn because our lives depend on it. Our safety depends on it. And so um, anyway, I just want to say to the listeners who might have been a victim or survivor of, of something difficult, if you're holding on to that, if you're suppressing that out of fear, you know, I hope, I hope you can find at least one person who can be a confidant and who you can speak openly about it. And if something is actively happening, I hope that you will find maybe, you know, an attorney who can go to the police with you or somebody who can also be an advocate and go with you to, to traverse that, that path. And, and I, I send you, you know, a from the heart love from one, one person to another who's gone through it and, and fortitude, you, you, you can get through it. And, you know, there are others out here who care and will be supportive. And thanks for giving me the chance to say that. Mm-hmm.